Aeon is a digital magazine that claims to dwell on the quote-unquote big questions facing humanity. In 2015, they published an article titled, You Can Do It, Baby. The article was by Leslie Garrett, who is a published author of a children's book that emphasizes the extraordinary story of Helen Keller, a woman who wasn't held back by the fact that she was born both blind and deaf. Garrett does her homework and litters the article with data points and quotes by leading sociologists and psychologists. But her message remains off from everything that is told to us by our parents and teachers. The message is that perhaps one can't do anything that they simply put their mind to. Sociologist John Reynolds points out that our do-anything attitude is no longer matching our willingness to do what it takes. In other words, a self-proclaimed expert on Helen Keller doesn't believe that we are capable of overcoming such extraordinary circumstances, which causes some people out there to even doubt Helen Keller's accomplishments in the first place. This gap between society telling us that we can be anything we want versus our own willingness to work for it results in a sizable gap of expectations. The effects are being felt in the real world. From 1976 to 2000, the number of people who intended to work as professionals doubled, while the number actively pursuing advanced degrees remained stubbornly stagnant. It is as if these individuals expect a miracle to accomplish the grunt work necessary to turn our dreams into reality. Miracles are at the heart of our series on Joan of Arc. Over the span of three years, Joan will have gone from an illiterate peasant tween to a captain leading the French forces against the English. She will have raised up her entire family to noble status, only to never enjoy the privileges herself. She will die a heretic via purifying flames, only to be raised up from the ashes as a saint. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the first in a four-part series regarding the warrior Joan of Arc. Episode 1, France on the Brink. Disappointingly, there isn't going to be too much Joan within this episode. She arrives to international acclaim during the Hundred Years' War, a war that amazingly lasted for more than 100 years. A peasant girl dressed in men's clothing showing up and demanding control of the king's armies merely because a voice in her head told her that it should happen isn't likely to be believed within a royal court. So why was control handed over to this untrained young woman? The answers lie in the story of the fragmentation of France and the individuals that seemingly broke it beyond repair. Rather than focusing on our heroine, 
This episode will introduce us to the bitter rival factions tearing the nation apart, the dueling kings of France, and perhaps the most important character in our story, France itself. There isn't much love lost between England and France. In fact, it has been said that between France and England, the best thing is the English Channel. Shakespeare blundered into the conflict by pondering the thought aloud that they have the same climate, their languages are almost identical, so why don't they like each other? There is some truth to what the playwright mused as 45% of all English words have their roots in French. Former Prime Minister George Clemenceau once quipped that English is just badly pronounced French, something that will hopefully get my own pronunciation off of the hook. Like most moms and their teenage daughters, the similarities of the two nations were the chief cause of the conflict that lasted for 116 years. Although interactions and incursions between the two proud nations had occurred before William the Conqueror set sail from the beaches of Normandy in northern France, his settling of England created the modern British population of Great Britain. The retention of his French lands after 1066 ensured that a struggle between the two proud nations was destined. Henry II and his son Richard the Lionheart ruled the Angevinian Empire in the latter half of the 1100s. Like William, Henry's original base of power had been in France, and Richard had been said to have not cared an egg for London or its surrounding lands. Despite the fact that he's regarded by some as one of the greatest English monarchs of all time, the Lionheart never even bothered to learn the English language. It is well known that John's incompetence forced him to limit the power of the British monarchy through the signing of the Magna Carta, but fewer realized the damage that his rule had on the size of the Angevin Empire, whose hearth had resided squarely in southern France. It was British humiliation at the mounting losses to France that stirred the revolt that forced John to sign away the absolute monarchy that he had inherited. By 1206, King John had conceded William's homeland of Normandy as well as his father's home territory of Anjou. Wars with Philip Augustus further cost the British their territories in Marne and Portoire. The upstart self-titled King Louis the Lion, the son of Philip, came to rule over London itself after conquering his way all the way through the spectacularly designed Tower of London. His rule was made even more official after the hapless John managed to literally lose a portion of England's crown jewels as he was hastily fleeing across a river situated within England, the land which he supposedly ruled. Thus, it comes to no one's surprise that there is yet to be another monarch of England who has chosen to claim the name of King John. Philip Augustus raised the Capetian dynasty to its greatest heights, but the line which had ruled France since 987 came to a disastrous end in 1328. That year, Charles IV died without a male heir. 
Charles had produced one daughter, and unbeknownst to him at the time of his death, had a second daughter marinating in her mother's womb. The patriarchal kingdom crossed their fingers and prayed that God would bestow upon them a male heir as they passed a succession law that prevented Charles's daughter from inheriting the French throne. Upon the girl's birthday, the French crown passed to his cousin, Philip of Valois, as the next most senior member of the family tree. He abided by the royal name of Philip VI. Edward III, Charles's brother-in-law, as well as the current King of England and Ireland, had a legal quibble with the succession, claiming that the law only forbade inheritance by a woman and not inheritance through a female line. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the result of such legalese would make Edward the appropriate heir to the throne and would unite the British and French realms beneath him. He pushed his birthright claim through the fact that his mother, Queen Isabella, was the daughter of Philip IV as well as the younger sister of Charles IV. Thus, the Hundred Years' War was launched from across the English Channel in a reversal of William's conquest 400 years earlier. War broke out in 1337, and the first phase of the Centurion Conflict became known as the Edwardian Period, one in which the English dominated and captured the French monarch King John II. The name John, when attached to the word king, is historically a pretty bad omen. John had fought at the front of his forces at the Battle of Portois, wielding a wicked two-handed battle axe with the efficiency of 20 men. Actually, it was just him and 19 identically dressed doppelgangers designed to fool his opposition. Alas, the real one happened to be captured on this occasion. His ransom from captivity in the Tower of London was set at the equivalent of three years of French government revenues. Still, his absence from Paris may have been a blessing, as the bubonic plague swept through southern France, killing half of the population in Marseille and one-fifth of the population in a number of other cities. In order to raise the necessary funds during a plague-induced recession, John was released back to France in exchange for his second-born son who subsequently grew bored at his father's inability to fulfill such a lofty ransom and escaped from the clutches of his English jailers. Proving that honor meant something slightly different back in the Middle Ages, King John of France voluntarily put himself back into captivity in order to atone for the shame caused by his second-born. It was during this second captivity that the king succumbed to illness ensuring that his firstborn, Charles V, would have to turn the tide of the war. Charles the Wise did exactly that, replenishing the royal treasury enough to establish France's first permanent army paid with regular wages. His forces reconquered nearly all of the land that Edward III had previously claimed. Even more impressive, Charles V was able to triumphantly launch naval assaults across the English Channel. But success can breed boldness in ways that tend to come back to bite us in the behind. 
In this instance, the king was emboldened enough to weigh in on what became known as the Papal Schism, a period of time when two individuals claimed the position and powers that was the Catholic Pope. It was Charles V's support that allowed Frenchman Clement VII to oppose Rome's choice of Urban VI. It was this schism that prevented the Catholic Church from intervening and bringing an end to the hostilities in France. Thus, Charles the Wise was unable to outwit, outplay, or outlast the Hundred Years' War. The next contestant to sit on the French throne was the 11-year-old Charles VI, a boy who was unfit to serve during war or peacetime. Charles VI was prone to severe bouts of mental psychosis, moments that left him unable to discern reality from fiction. In 1392, he suffered an episode and burst into psychotic violence that killed five of his own attendants. Because the French still maintained a belief in the divine right of kings, a doctrine which posited that God himself had chosen the man on the throne, Charles was subdued for the attack rather than executed. For the rest of his life, he would lapse without warning, oftentimes accusing his wife and children of being strangers, as well as resisting the servants who repeatedly told him that his name was Charles. There were times that he even claimed to be made of glass, and that he would shatter into a thousand pieces if someone touched him. The illness wasn't as rare as one might expect. His mother, Joanna, had been second cousins with his father, and was the known carrier of the genes that had been fractured due to royal inbreeding. The king's episodes weren't sporadic nor short, as the king once refused to bathe for five straight months. The guards even had to seal up his palace to prevent him from escaping, as well as sew iron rods into his clothing to prevent him from shattering if he were to fall. The king's instability opened the door to those who believe that God's divine favor may suddenly shift to their households instead. It is here that we introduce the first two major players in our story leading up to Joan of Arc. The first is John the Fearless, officially known as the Duke of Burgundy. The second is Louis of Orleans, John's cousin. Both were related to the crown and thus were deemed princes of the blood. The Duke of Burgundy's nickname was appropriate. John had expected to ascend to the status of the king's right hand due to his success and fearlessness shown in battle against the English. But he was politically outmaneuvered by Louis, the king's younger brother who was significantly more talented in the arena of court politics. He was so good at the Game of Thrones that there remained strong rumors that Louis had already ascended to the role of the Queen's lover. The feud between the would-be claimants turned comical in ways that you now see celebrities like the Kardashians bicker and feud on social media. Louis changed his badge's symbol to that of a wooden club, which is believed to have been meant as a threatening emblem. John of Burgundy responded in kind by altering his house's badge to that of a carpenter's plane, a tool that could be used to whittle down a club. 
The infighting escalated as it often does with the two men standing in constant opposition, particularly regarding the necessity of raising taxes. Author Emery Free warns us that feuds are weeds. Once it's grown roots, it's harder to dig up and it's far easier to spread. Louis used his position close to the incapacitated king in order to buy up land that belonged to the Burgundies, who had viewed the territory as part of their private hunting ground. That Louis had robbed the royal treasury to do so, meaning that he purchased the land with coin collected from John's own taxes, made the insult even worse. The king's gifts had also been turned in favor of the Orleans side of the ledger, with Louis receiving an excess of 200,000 livres per year in comparison to the Burgundy's mere 37,000. Like everything in this part of the world, relations with the English factored in the quarrel. John's lands, heavy in textile industry, relied upon the English for wool, while the Orleans crew, known as the Armanacs, favored a purely French agricultural model that benefited from the times during which the two nations were at war. Thus, the discussed lull in the Hundred Years' War favored the House of Burgundy, while any resumption of hostilities would be cheered by those of the House of Orleans. The two men's bickering thus had wide-ranging geopolitical ramifications. In 1407, John the Fearless massively escalated the Houses' bickering, setting France upon a course that would result in a civil war so bad that it necessitated a savior sent by God to undo the damage. At some point in June, the Burgundies began looking for a house in Paris that resided along the Duke of Orleans' typical walk home. A gang of Norman knights remained holed up within the residence until the night of November 23rd. That night, Louis was traveling home from a visit to his sister-in-law, the Queen. She had just given birth to a child two weeks earlier, and rumors claimed that the boy bore a striking resemblance to his uncle, the Duke of Orleans. Thus, contemporary reports of the evening's events place Louis in a jovial mood. Proving that the streets of Paris weren't the safest, the Duke traveled with a guard of ten men who carried lit torches to shine light on any possible plots lying in the shadows. But as Ron Burgundy declared 500 years later, things escalated quickly. Twenty masked assassins lurked with daggers and axes at the ready. Louis's arm was initially hacked off before the killers finally decapitated him. Proving that the event was not mere highway robbery, the Duke's body was then mutilated. Louis's surviving guards told a tale filled with fear as they witnessed their liege's brain being splattered across the cobblestone streets of the City of Light. Despite his attendance at the Duke's funeral, suspicion quickly shifted towards John of Burgundy and, living up to his nickname of Fearless, 
John readily admitted to setting up the ambush, claiming that the assassination was not only justified, but done for the benefit of all Parisians. Historian Richard Vaughn claims that what came next was one of the most insolent pieces of political chicanery in history. John worked overtime to justify his actions, including bribing historians and theologians at the University of Paris into writing that Louis was leading France down a path of ruin. Burgundy propaganda declared that the Duke of Orleans was a womanizer who had led the queen astray and fathered a number of his brother-in-law's children. Rachel Gibbons is among those who look at this line of thought in the most sinister way. Her essay, published in the Journal for the Transactions of the Royal Historical Society, states that, as a woman in power, Isabel was pelted with rumors, adultery, incest, witchcraft, neglect, you name it. Above all, she was said to be a neglectful mother. As is often the case today, the most accessible weapons to use against a woman were criticism of her looks and her sexual conduct. So Isabel was known as adulterous woman who also neglects her children, totally beyond redemption, instead of a queen ruling a nation. For those who may have thought as Gibbons did, John also went for the argument that would affect the people's wallets. Louis's increase in public taxes had already made him unpopular, and thus many bought into the propaganda. John began to campaign negatively about the prior administration's tax hikes during the war in order to further drive a wedge between the Armanacs and the struggling people of France. Finally, John went after the scholarly class of France. Jean Pettit, a renowned scholar, made the case that the Duke of Burgundy ought to be rewarded for his actions rather than punished. For in his mind, divine laws allow any subject to kill one who is acting immoral within proximity of the king. In the court of popular opinion, Louis had become a slave to the passion of greed, the source of all evil, and guilty of high treason. For those who weren't convinced by John's arguments, he mustered military forces to do enough to make them keep their own objections quiet at least for the time being. Sometimes it's difficult to not fall for one's own propaganda. I regularly have to remind myself that I am not quite as cool as I appear to be in the stories that I tell to my students. I'm pretty sure this year I suggested that my 41-year-old self could beat 20 high schoolers in dodgeball all by myself. Thankfully, I wasn't picked by the student body to participate in the staff versus students game, and thus no one for sure knows whether or not my boast was legitimate or not. The remainder of John's life became best explained by Hunter S. Thompson's thought that there is no such thing as paranoia. Your worst fears can come true at any moment. John the Fearless began to constantly fear revenge from the remaining Armanacs of the House of Orleans. His home in Paris was turned into a fortress, which he rarely left. 
and his bedrooms were moved to the very top of his tallest tower, filled with his personal bodyguard, who remained within the duke's bedrooms even as he slept. The Burgundy and Armagnac's personal feud began to spill into the streets in 1411, and by 1413, John had been uprooted from his residences in Paris and was forced to shift his center of power closer to Luxembourg. It was around this time that another major power came to France, with the King of England, Henry V, setting foot along the shores of France in the summer of 1415. He settled in Normandy's capital, Rune. Although the Hundred Years' War had quieted down, there hadn't been an agreement reached as to the original claims that Henry's ancestors had made regarding the French throne. The infighting of the two most powerful houses of France, along with a king who was clearly mentally unwell, made now an inviting time to again surge forth the British army in order to back up their ancestors' prior political claims. Most of France united against the new British threat. John wasn't among them, however. The battle that the French hoped would end the war became known as Agincourt. As had been true in 1066, the English longbow proved to be the difference. The French drew their lines relying on heavy cavalry, the tool that had allowed Charlemagne to establish the Frankish state in the first place. Historian Helen Castor describes for us the fateful day, writing that the French lines launched themselves across the land they had assembled to defend, then the air shifted with a thrum, and all at once the sky was dark. Razor-tipped arrows unleashed in a numberless rolling storm plunged through breastplates and visors, muscles, and bone. Violent death was falling from the clouds, and in response, spurs kicked screaming horses to charge down the archers from whose bows this slaughter flew. They found only death of a different kind, impaling themselves on the sharpened stakes that, they saw too late, bristled from the ground on which the archers stood, or wheeling in panic and stumbling under the pounding hooves of those who pressed behind. Dead and living fell together. Castor continues, crushed into suffocating earth one on top of another in heaped piles from which none would rise. For more than two hours, French soldiers labored onward, heavy feet struggling in sucking mud or tangled in the twisted limbs of the fallen, and all the while English blades hacked and stabbed. Even the reinforcements failed on this fateful day, with the Duke of Brabant proving his over-eagerness by galloping too far too fast, resulting in his prized cavalry troops being surrounded and systematically slaughtered. At the end of the day, the death toll added to those who had been captured for the sake of ransom was a who's who of the most important political players in all of France. Castor's last thought on the Battle of Agincourt was that France lay broken on a field of blood. Jehovah's Witnesses tend to annoy a lot of individuals. This is despite the fact that most individuals, even those who call themselves fellow Christians, have a limited understanding regarding the beliefs of the sect. 
The one thing that everyone knows is that Jehovah Witnesses love to come to your door and talk your ear off about Jesus. Their door-to-door -door evangelism showcases their strongest belief, namely that God is among us and shows himself to us each and every day, but only if you are looking for his signs. The job of a witness is to discover those signs and share them with the world, hence their desire to talk to you even during the most inconvenient times of your day. The witnesses aren't part of this story. They started in the early 1800s in Pittsburgh, but the concept that a god sends signs to those who are looking for them was well ingrained within the societies of both the English and the French. Keep in mind that nearly everyone within medieval Europe was a practicing Christian. Luther had yet to split the church through the Reformation, and thus there was one clear voice singing the praises and will of God. But any individual was capable of recognizing the signs. The English saw tons of signs emanating from the Battle of Agincourt. Castor tells us that only God's will could explain how so few Englishmen had vanquished so many great knights of France, and how it was that so little English blood had been spilled when so much death had been visited on their adversaries. The triumph of another David over the might of an arrogant Goliath. They conveniently ignored the fact that two other supposed signs of God's desire for their victory had come and gone during the prolonged conflict namely England's naval victory at Slurs in 1340 and the capturing of the French king in 1356. But God operates in mysterious ways, allowing his believers to interpret his signs in whichever way they choose to, which is precisely what the French did. Rather than viewing the disaster at Agincourt as a sign that the English king's claims on the throne were divinely justified, they looked at the slaughter as a sign that God was punishing the French for their own sins, namely for the infighting between the Armanacs and the Burgundies. A monk served as the chronicler to the day's events, writing, I leave it to those who have given the matter careful consideration to decide if we should attribute the ruin of the kingdom to the French nobility. The lords of France have fallen into sybaric luxury into vanity and into vice, and their impious abuse of Holy Mother Church was matched only by their mortal hatred of each other. All these crimes, and others worse still, have justly stirred up the wrath of God against the great men of the kingdom, so that he has taken from them the power to defeat their enemies, or even resist their attack. The Armanact faction saw only one way to regain the will of God to their favor serve up justice, or at least a very cold version of vengeance, upon the House of Burgundy and John the Fearless for his cold-blooded murder of Louis of Orleans. After all, it had been his assassination that had precipitated a civil war that had opened up the doors of France to unchecked English aggression. John hid behind the complicated rules of feudalism in order to avoid the slaughter at Agincourt. He attempted to utilize the same arguments to stay out of the hands of the vengeful Armanacs. Having land in France forced him to obey the king, 
but as the Count of Burgundy, he also owed allegiance to the Holy Roman Emperor. Relying upon the British for economic support placed him in a confusing position, as the right thing to do for his people often meant staying on the good side of the English. His land holdings in Flanders and Artois forced him to also function within the political schemes of the bordering Low Countries. This complex web of loyalties resulted from time to time in comical behavior, such as the time that John the Fearless was tasked by the French king to command an assault on the English-held port city of Calais at the exact time that his ambassadors were busy negotiating a treaty with the English in order to keep his own lands of Flanders neutral. Thus, John would lead the French forces, but provide zero assistance from his own lands in order to maintain positive economic ties with the enemy. After the Battle of Algecourt, John attempted to come to Paris to assert his French claims, but was turned away by the Armanacs who controlled the day-to-day -day operations of the city. In 1416, he agreed to a deal with King Henry, in which he promised to not involve his personal territories in any war with England. With his back protected by the Brits, John worked overtime in order to undo the stranglehold that his French enemies had within the capital. He successfully married his niece to the new Dauphin, a French term that symbolizes who is next in line for the throne. This prince and heir was the 18-year-old Jean of Touraine. He would utilize all of John's available resources to assert himself as the new base of power within the city, dislodging Armanac loyalists, replacing them with those who wore burgundy colors. John's plane went to work once again whittling away the clubs of his enemies. But before he could begin to smooth his path to power, the Dauphin passed away from unknown causes, of which poison is just one suspect. The title of Dauphin passed to the king's youngest son, Charles, a boy of 14 years who was well under the sway of the Armanacs. Showcasing that the House of Orleans were willing to use every tool available to them, they quickly married the daughter of one of their most loyal allies to the young man. Seeing no path open to him, John again tried his hand at propaganda, publishing a pamphlet that openly declared that the Armanacs were traitors, destroyers, pillagers, and poisoners who had murdered the king's son, Louis and Jean. They also accused the Armanacs as willfully leading the French to staggering defeat at Azacourt. As the cherry on top, John added at the bottom of the pamphlet that he would abolish all taxes if the House of Burgundy were once again placed in charge. With the fighting words having been signed, sealed, and delivered, the Queen stepped into the breach in a last-minute attempt to prevent open hostilities. Her closeness to the deceased Duke of Orleans should have granted her credibility with the Armanac faction, as there were still rumors flying about the appropriateness of the past relationship. Her husband was essentially an invalid at this point in time, so her efforts were done in large part to preserve the empire for her still-living son. Much to her surprise, she was gifted the shortest of leashes to negotiate with. In fact, after it appeared that she would side with the Burgundies in the sake of brokering peace, 
the Armanac Count in Paris exiled the queen to reside more than 100 miles from the capital. The act pushed the queen, herself a powerful figure who had, along with the Armanac head of family, governed the state during the mental absence of the king. Despite her prior closeness to his rival, John of Burgundy swept her into his orbit, posing as her liberator-slash-protector. With the king still incapacitated, France now had two legitimate governments. Holding Paris were the Armanacs, whose legitimacy came from their sway over the Dauphin, and the eastern portion of the empire was the Burgundy faction, whose authority resided with the sitting queen. Aesop, the Greek man credited with the invention of the fable, was an expert at demonstrating simple life lessons through short stories. One of the former slave-turned-author stories that I share with my class is titled The Lion, the Boar, and the Vultures. France would have been better off if they had paid attention to the story's moral. On a summer day, Aesop begins, when the great heat induced a general thirst, a lion and a boar came at the same moment to a small well to drink. They fiercely disputed which of them should drink first, and were soon engaged in the agonies of mortal combat. On their stopping on a sudden to take breath for the fierce renewal of their strife, they saw some vultures waiting in the distance to feast on the one who should fall first. They at once made up their quarrel, saying, It is better for us to make friends than become the food of crows or vultures, as will certainly happen if we are disabled. The English represent the vultures in the story. For while the Armanacs and Burgundies engaged in the agonies of mortal combat, King Henry of England slipped through the open door. The difference between Aesop's ideal world and the gritty reality of life in Paris in 1418 was that the combatants had looked up. If the French had, you know, looked upwards on their maps, they would have seen English troops assembling and moving without objection throughout Normandy. On May 29th, the Armanacs appeared to lose the fight. Rebellion broke out in Paris in large part because the people had become fed up with the French government's failure to defend their northern territories. The Armanacs' position within the capital city meant that more blame for the collective failure fell to their feet. One chronicler in the city tells us that Paris was in an uproar. The people took up their arms much faster than the soldiers did, turning upon itself and leaving the streets filled with bludgeoned corpses heaped naked upon each other. The killing continued for at least two weeks and included mutilating all of the unfortunate souls within the city's prisons and setting alight any building which was locked to their entry. The king was taken captive. This isn't going to be the last French king who ends up on the wrong side of a citizen's arrest and the Count of Armanac, the head of their family, was killed in a fire. John arrived triumphantly to the cheering capital city a month later, having done nothing but sow dissent during a period in French history that required unity. The Burgundies woke up the next morning to two problems. 
The first and more immediate problem was the rampaging British forces in Normandy. Previously, John had ignored the northern threat and utilized it as propaganda to turn the French against the Armanacs. But now that he was in charge of Paris and the fact that they threatened his land in the Low Countries next, he would have to violate his prior agreement and mobilize his forces against the Brits. Secondly, and what will turn out to be a bigger problem in the long run, the surviving Armanac loyalists had managed to get the Dauphin out of the city. Charles VII, the 15-year-old Dauphin, had barely escaped the chaos, reduced to fleeing his capital while still dressed in his pajamas. He and his supporters began to refer to him at this time as the Regent of France, rather than the Dauphin, as it was clear to all at this point that his father, who was in the custody of the Burgundies, was no longer in charge of the country. He set up a new French government in Bourges, a city that lies 100 miles south of Paris. This put John the Fearless's government squarely between the Armanacs and the British, allowing breathing space for the prince. As in Aesop's fable, the victor of the fight was too wounded to fend off the vultures. Castor provides the details, writing that, in January 1419, after a five-month siege, the English finally starved Rune into submission, and two weeks later, Henry's forces were at Mantis, only 30 miles from Paris. No one did anything about it because all the French lords were angry with each other, because the Dauphin was at odds with his father on account of the Duke of Burgundy, who was with the king, and all the other princes of the blood royal had been taken prisoner by the English king at the Battle of Osdecourt. Paris remained stalwartly hostile to the Armanacs, but faith in the Duke of Burgundy had not survived his recent experience of Burgundy rule. So the kingdom of France went from bad to worse. And this was entirely, or almost entirely, the fault of the Duke of Burgundy, who was the slowest man in the world in everything that he did. In fact, by the time news arrived of the fall of Rune, Duke John had already left his troops to hold the beleaguered capital while he moved the king and queen to the greater safety of the town of Provence, 50 miles from Paris, in the opposite direction from the English army's approach. So much for that fearless nickname. Clearly, France needed to be united to stave off the English threat of Henry. In other words, it had come to the point where it was best for the Burgundies and the Armanacs to make friends before becoming the bland food which the English loved to dine upon. Charles the Dauphin, who was possibly the bastard son of the slain Duke of Orleans, made the first move, persuading John that he was willing to let bygones be bygones. The young man convinced the Duke that he had control of the Armanacs and invited him to make peace at Montereau. The proceedings were elaborate, as a wood enclosure was built atop a stone tower that stood exactly halfway across the bridge between castle and town. Thus, the two proud leaders could meet at the halfway point, say their piece in private, and then publicly join forces. But as soon as the Duke entered the newly built wooden walls and knelt at the feet of the Dauphin, the steel blade of a war axe was driven deep into his skull, 
Hidden Armanac men-at-arms surged into the enclosure, turning their rudimentary guns at the deceased Duke's advisors. Castor tells us that it was an assassination more precisely planned and more ruthlessly executed than the murder of the Duke of Orleans in the streets of Paris 12 years earlier. For some, it was an eye for an eye, a reckoning at least for the loss of their former leader. For the teenage Dauphin, who had been just four years old when Louis of Orleans died, it was the striking down of the devil's lieutenant, the man who had raised war in the kingdom for as long as the young prince could remember. Now, there could be no hope of reconciliation between Armanac and Burgundian. The American clergyman Douglas Horton once said, while seeking revenge, dig two graves, one for yourself. Like before, the murderers played the political game, this time claiming that the first sword drawn on the bridge had been that of the Duke of Burgundy. In their minds, what followed inside the walls of the Peace Tower were merely acts of self-defense. Philip, John's son was elevated to the status of the Duke of Burgundy. He never bought the story and still exerted physical control over the hapless king and the more formidable queen. Faced with the two choices for the crown, the Dauphin who killed his father or the King of England, he chose the latter, signing an alliance treaty in the spring of 1420. Having the incapacitated king and queen of France as hostages paid off, and on May 21st, Charles VI, the mad king of France, signed the Treaty of Troyes. As part of the deal, King Henry of England would marry his French counterpart's youngest of 12 children, Catherine of Valois. The treaty mandated that it would be their children that would inherit the French throne, thus cutting Charles the Dauphin completely out of the line of succession. Furthermore, because of the mental illness suffered by the French monarch, Henry would immediately take control of the French throne, resulting in what historians refer to as English France. The Burgundies handed over Paris to their new allies, the English, and due to the treaty's terms, cities across of France began to open their doors to their new English king. Henry wasted no time in France or in his marriage bed. Eighteen months after their nuptials had been proclaimed, the couple produced an heir to the throne, a boy who had the blood of an English king, mixed with that of a French princess of the blood. With Henry, aged 36, rampaging through the remaining resistance of the French countryside and his heir to the throne safely stashed away in a British nursery, English France looked invulnerable. It was at this point that France needed a miracle to ensure its survival. No one expected that miracle to come in the form of a 16-year-old girl dressed as a boy. But God is said to work in mysterious ways. In our next episode, we will recap the futile fight that Charles and the Armanacs put up against the English 
and now rightful French king before the arrival of their savior Joan of Arc, the woman who would lead the French to victory and see against all odds that Charles the Dauphin was crowned as the rightful king of France. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word. Thank you.